Amen. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the presence of the Holy Ghost here among us and within us. We thank you, Father, for the power that's in the name of Jesus. Greater is he that is in us than he that's in the world, Lord. Father, we thank you for utterance in the Holy Ghost today that we might speak that which is needful and necessary for the people to hear. Father, I thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit within us, the quickening power of God that will cause us to see how to apply this word to our lives, that we might be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus, that the world might see you through us. For it's in your wonderful name we pray, the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to uh, Revelation chapter 3. We've been going through the um, seven letters that Jesus wrote to the churches, the seven churches in Asia. And we have gotten ourselves to the church at Philadelphia. There are two churches left to be discussed. So this morning I want to talk to you about the, uh, the church at Philadelphia. While you're um, turning to Revelation chapter 3, let me give you some background, a little bit of background on the, the city of Philadelphia, the history of Philadelphia that I believe will make um, the information that Jesus gives to the church a little bit more uh, understandable. The city of Philadelphia was uh, uh, located at the... Uh, the border of three different ancient kingdoms, Lydia, Mysia, and Phrygia. Uh, all of those are, are mentioned in the Bible as places that, uh, that Paul either went to or uh, wanted to go to. And in one instance, he tried to go there and the Holy Ghost wouldn't let him. And the, um, the city of Philadelphia, we know that Philadelphia means brotherly love, the city of brotherly love. It was uh, uh, built in about 159, 160 B.C. by the king of Pergamum. And he built it in honor of his brother. He and his brother were very close, and, and uh, he built it in honor of his brother. And so that's where the, the name Philadelphia comes from. And this is about, um, well, what would it be? hundred and some odd years after Alexander the Great has come through that, uh, that territory. Now, because of its location, it was very strategically located on a, a road that was going east and that uh, the road that joined the other cities of Asia with uh, Ephesus and the, the seaports that would go further west. It was uh, very much a trade route, and the, uh, the Greeks recognized that uh, when, they, when Alexander took over most of the known world of his day, these were people that were disconnected, had different languages and, and so forth. And so there was a, a great effort made to uh, introduce and indoctrinate these new kingdoms, new peoples into the Greek culture. And so that was the purpose for Philadelphia's founding and one of its major uses. It was known as a, as a missionary city not in a Christian manner, but for the Greek culture. And uh, as a result, it was uh, something that was designed to show the surrounding kingdoms what the Greek culture was all about, uh, to uh, make available to them instruction in uh, Hellenism and the Greek language and so forth. So much, uh, so successful was it, and it, this was not the only city that, uh, that the Greeks did this with, but it was one of the main ones in this part of the world. And it was so successful that it was said of the, of the Lydians that within 20 years they had forsaken and over forgotten their own language and adopted the Greek language. So it was something that was considered to be uh, an open door, a gateway city to Hellenism on a, one of the major trade routes of the world. In 18, seven, I'm sorry, in 17 AD, there was a great earthquake that Philadelphia seemed to be the epicenter of. And it tremendously affected that area. Very, very strong earthquake. And it tremendously affected that area. Much of the uh, surrounding cities was destroyed. Sardis, was, uh, which we talked about last week, was very much affected by this as it was the closest city to the Philadelphia. And it destroyed much of the, the city of Philadelphia. Tiberius was the uh, Roman emperor at the time. 
and he rebuilt the city. And because he put so much effort into rebuilding the city and uh, the reconstruction and so forth, the name of the city was changed for a period of time. And the, the name of it doesn't matter, but it had to do with Tiberius and that kind of thing. But there was a name change in the city. And it was something that the people resisted because they uh, wanted to maintain their own identity and, and so forth. And uh, so in, when uh, Jesus appears to, to John and uh, gives him the letter to the city of Philadelphia, they've been greatly affected, greatly impacted and, and uh um, well, they lived in threat of additional tremors and so forth. As a matter of fact, uh, Greek historians write that uh, for many years, even decades after the, um, the earthquake of A.D. 17, there would be small tremors that would continue. And the buildings had been so uh, tremendously weakened by this that many times chunks of the, the buildings and roofs and stuff like that would fall off and kill people in the marketplace and in the uh, in the streets and going down the colonnades and so forth. So they were very earthquake-minded. They they felt like they had had the big one. But uh, as a result of this, whenever there was any shaking whatsoever, everybody was living on edge for, for well, throughout the, the period of time, almost for 100 years, uh, 78, 80 years almost uh, after the earthquake when John writes the letter. And uh, as a result... Whenever there was any kind of shaking whatsoever, the city would go into a panic. They would go running out of the city into the open fields. And in fact, many people got so tired of the, the, the threat of the earthquakes that they just moved out into the open fields and set up tents and semi-permanent housing and stuff like that and just lived away from the city. And all these things are going to be things that Jesus references when he talks to the church. So let's start in chapter 3, verse 7. And under the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write... These things, this is written to the pastor, who's the angel, the messenger. These things saith he that is holy and he that is true. He that hath the key of David that openeth and no man shutteth and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength and hast kept my word and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the, all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go out no more, or, or he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now notice, first of all, in verse 7, Jesus identifies something very differently, or identifies himself very differently to this church than any others. You may have noticed that in the, the reading of the, the instruction that Jesus gave to the church, he didn't have anything negative to say about them. This is only the second, uh, two of, the second of the two churches that uh, Jesus gives instruction to that he doesn't have something to correct. The first was Smyrna, and they were under such severe persecution. The, uh, the general idea is he didn't want to add anything to the problems they already had. But this church, he has every opportunity to speak to them about what to correct, and there's nothing to correct. Now, as a result, notice that Jesus identifies himself in a much different way than he did to any of the other seven churches. We won't take time to go back to chapter 1 and read about the vision and how John saw him, but you remember his eyes were flames of fire and his feet were like burning brass, and his hair was white with wool, and he was standing in the midst of the seven stars and seven candlesticks. All of those things he mentions to other churches. Not to every church, but different parts of it to each church. That's not what Jesus says here. Jesus does not reference his appearance to John. He doesn't reference the way that John saw, them, saw him. He references himself in a much different manner. He references himself as the one that is holy, the one that is true, and the one that has the key of David. 
Now, he also mentions in verse 9 about those that are of the synagogue of Satan. That's a phrase that he used in chapter 2 in verse 9, talking to the city of Smyrna, the church at Smyrna. Now, Smyrna was in a different situation because they were under persecution by the Romans, severe persecution by the Romans. And apparently, because Jesus references the Jews and of the synagogue of Satan, much of that persecution is being uh, fueled or stirred up or, or something, affected in some way, influenced some way by the Jews. Well, apparently there's the same thing going on with the, with the uh, church of Philadelphia, although they're not under the same type of persecution. He didn't say anything about them being persecuted. He just says something about the position that the Jews are taking against the church. Now, when Jesus identifies himself as the one that has the key of David and opening a door that no man can shut, the city of Philadelphia was considered to be a door to be open to, the, to Hellenism in the Greek culture. So they understood very well when Jesus talks about the open door that he's talking about something that would introduce the kingdom of God through the church. Now, this, uh, this phrase open door, there's two times, uh, two different uh, places in the scripture where the Bible talks about an open door. The first is in Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. And this was when Hezekiah was king of Israel. And... Um, there was a certain man, his name was Shebna, I believe, it, if that's how you say it. And he was the, um, the, an advisor, maybe the chief of staff to Hezekiah. And apparently he got caught up into something where he was running some kind of private scam or benefiting some way or another. I know it's hard to believe the politicians or somebody in government would be doing something unethical. But nevertheless, it seemed to be the case in, in his day. Thank God it's not like that today. But anyway, he was, uh, apparently he was running some kind of personal scam. And so God says to Isaiah that he's going to take him out and replace him with a godly man. His name was Elakim or something like that. And anyway, what he says about it in uh, chapter 22 of Isaiah and verse 22, he says, In the key of the house of David I will lay upon his shoulder. So he shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. Now... This is significant because Paul certainly knows. Paul has the same training as uh, the high priest. And um, uh, Paul would certainly know about the open and shut door and the story in Isaiah. And that's exactly the same reference that he uses or uh, illustration that he uses when he writes to the Corinthians, both in first letter of Corinthians, first Corinthians 16, And in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he talks about two times in his ministry where God opened a door unto him. So we know that he is referencing the same illustration that the Holy Ghost used when he talked to to Isaiah in Isaiah 22. In 1 Corinthians 16, he talks about when he was in Ephesus. He's writing the letter to the Corinthians, first letter to the Corinthians from Ephesus. And he says, I'm going to stay here. Because God is opening a door to me, and it's an effectual door. The King James says effectual. It's literally the word powerful door. And he says, then there are many adversaries. Now, this was the time that he spent the three years in Ephesus. Probably the time that, um, uh, well, the time that the Bible says that all of Asia heard the word. Most probably it was the time where the church in Philadelphia was, was uh, born. And so when he talks about this effectual door, he's talking about a door of ministry. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he talks about when he was in Troas and he was praying about where to go and the Holy Ghost wouldn't let him go into Mysia, wouldn't let him go into Phrygia, all regions that this uh, city of Philadelphia borders. And then he had a vision in the night where a man of Macedonia was in the vision and said, come over here and help us. So he talks about that as being God opening a door of ministry to him to where he went into Macedonia and went into Philippi, the chief city of of the region. So when Jesus is used, and and of course, um, by the time John writes this letter, by the time Jesus appears to him and John writes the letter, this is some almost 40 years later after the church was born, some 25 years maybe after uh, uh, Paul wrote the letters, the church in Philadelphia would certainly certainly be aware of the letters that he wrote to the Corinthians. So when he talks about the open door, he knows that they understand the reference. So when Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3, 
Jesus says a couple of things. Let me read it again. Let me go back. I got away from it. Jesus says in verse 7 that he has the key of David. Now, what does that reference? It references, the key of David references the the line of, of, uh, uh, the, the line that you can trace from Abraham to Jesus. So that's what the Jews are, are claiming. The Jews are saying, well, we're the ones that are of the seed of Abraham. We're the ones that have the, the, the lineage of the Messiah that, that is spoken of. They're denying Jesus as the Messiah and saying, we're the only way to God. We're the open door to the kingdom of God. You have to become uh, circumcised and you have to follow the law of Moses in order to, to enter into the kingdom of God. That's the, the rub that's taking place. Now, let me, uh, let me talk to you a little bit about real life in that time. <clears throat> when these churches started, not just these seven churches, but all the other churches that Paul started on his missionary journey, when these churches started, most of the people that are being born again are not Jews. But they find that they're serving the same God as the Jews. When they learn a little bit and they don't know anything about Jewish history, they don't know anything about Israel, they don't know anything about the Old Testament, I'm talking about the Gentiles that get saved, they find out that here they are in these cities, many times isolated, many times ostracized from their families, many times marriages are broken up because one gets saved and the other does not, many times it's a husband against a wife, mothers against children, and vice versa. And so you can well understand that you would gravitate toward those that believe like you to help keep you sane, if nothing else, especially when persecution arises. There's a lot of times that you'd be tempted by the devil to just give up, turn loose of this thing, go back to the way things were because you never had it so hard before. Well, as a result, many times the Christians would go worship in the synagogues. Now, the Jews were okay as long as they thought the Christians were there to worship their way. But once they realized, wait a minute, these are not just people that are interested in Judaism. These are not people that want to convert to Judaism. These are people that have accepted Jesus. We don't want anything to do with them. And so there would become a real rub. In many cases, they'd throw them out of the cities. In many cases, the Jews would stir up trouble against the churches because they didn't want their worship, their Jewish worship, to be corrupted by the Christians. Well, as a result, the Christians are on the outs of everything. They're isolated from everybody except other Christians. That's why fellowship and church had so much more meaning then than it does today. They were looking for some place that was a place of safety, a place of security, a place of freedom, and a place where they could be loved and accepted. So when Jesus talks about the, the, the works and the love of the church being shown to other believers, it wasn't a convenience issue like it is today. Nowadays, people decide, number one, whether or not they're going to go to church. They'll look at the weather and say, well, are we going to go to the church? Are we going to go to the beach or the lake or the river or whatever? Insert your favorite distraction in the the blank, you know. And then if they decide they're going to go to church, then they'll look in the yellow pages and figure out what church they want to go to. Well, I want to go to this church because they're not going to preach anything that's going to make me feel guilty. Or I want to go to that church because everybody goes to that church. Or I want to go to the other church because I can disappear, blend in. Nobody will notice whether I'm there. There's all kinds of reasons. I want to go to this church because this is where my friends go. There's all kinds of reasons for people going to church today that they didn't have in their days. I mean, church was life and death for them. Spiritual life and death. Many times people were on the edge of turning loose, especially in, the, in places where there was great persecution. Can you imagine what persecution would do to the American church today? Initially, it would empty them out. And after a while, when God had a chance to deal with people and so forth, then the people that were really serious would go back and and so forth. But can you imagine what real persecution like these folks faced in these days and times? Can you imagine what real persecution would do to a modern Christian church today? What we might call a nominal Christian church? Most of them would have to shut their doors. Because nobody's going to come, nobody's going to pay the bills, and so forth. For that reason, Jesus commends this church 
Not because they're big, not because they're popular, but because they keep their strengths based upon what they've heard and what they've been built on. So when Jesus says, I'm the one that has the key to David, what he's saying is, you're the real Jews. You're spiritual Israel. Not the ones that claim to be descendants, natural descendants of Abraham. You're the ones. No matter what they tell you, no matter what they ridicule you about or try to insult you with, you're the real Jews. You're the people of God, not them. He goes further and says, I know thy works. Verse 8. Behold, I have set before thee an open door. Now, what would they understand that open door to mean? Well, if they had any background of of, uh, Jewish history, then they'd know that it's talking about in Isaiah 22, where God says that he's going to give the the right to open the door to the kingdom to the godly man, not the corrupt guy. If they don't know that, and we don't have any record, any way to know one way or the other, if they don't know that, what they know of is that Paul wrote about open doors of ministry. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm giving you a ministry opportunity that I haven't given anybody else. Now, the extent of that ministry opportunity, we don't know. But if it's anything like Paul talked about before, he talked about the open door in Ephesus where all of Asia heard the word in a space of three years. He talked about an open door in Macedonia where he was supernaturally led by a vision to a place where a church started that still lives and exists today and the power of God that delivered him supernaturally from prison and from his enemies. So what would you interpret that open door to being if you were in Philadelphia? At the very least, you'd have to interpret that as God's with us and on our side. I have set before thee an open door and no man can shut it for thou hast a little strength. Now here's the reason that he gives for thou hast a little strength. That's a really poor translation. Two words are being spoken of, micros and dunamis. We know dunamis is the word for power. The word micro we use for small things, microscope and such. And so the way it's interpreted, the the way it's translated is you've got a little strength. But that's not what it means. It's saying very simply this, though you're little in number... This was one of the smallest of the seven churches, probably the smallest of the seven churches, the least well-known, the least popular. He said, though you're little in number and in physical resources, you have strength. That's interesting to me that the one church that Jesus does not say anything negative to, that, that you can't attach a real reason for it. Like I said, there's two churches that didn't have anything negative to say about. One was Smyrna, was under great persecution. Well, you can understand why he wouldn't say anything even if there were things wrong. They're hanging on for dear life. But the church in Philadelphia, he has every opportunity to tell them what needs to be corrected and doesn't correct anything. And what does he say about them? Though they're little in number and in physical resources, you're strong. Now, I don't know about you, but it seems to me that most everybody talks about what, what talk there is in ch- about church in America is about the megachurches. Do you know what percentage of Christians go to megachurches? Less than five. So if megachurches are doing all the work, we're in trouble. In fact, Jesus validates the smaller church, not the megachurches. Ephesus was the megachurch, not the most popular church. The church of Asia, which was Sardis, that church was dead, even though it had a great reputation. It was literally hanging on and had no idea that they were on the edge. But this church, he says, is the church that he's opening a door. Now, what does that mean? Well, we know the city was placed strategically. And so we have to assume that the church is placed strategically, too. We don't know who the pastor is. Don't know who the angel is. Some of the churches we do, but this one we don't. There's no historical record. The city was so devastated by uh, the earthquakes throughout the years that there's very little record of anything concrete in comparison to the other churches. The ruins of of, uh, Philadelphia are nothing compared to the other churches. Everything's been pretty much destroyed over the years. But when we come to the spiritual aspect of things, spiritual side of things, we have to assume that what Jesus is saying 
is the churches that he plants strategically, he opens doors of ministry for them that nobody can change. That might be different for different churches. I would assume that it would be. And that's one of the things that's always puzzled me about the American church is that so many pastors, thank God I never caught, caught up in this. I learned from Brother Hagin. But so many pastors are looking for what works for other churches and trying to become them. How could anybody with good sense expect that to work? In order for you to have their success, you're going to have to become them literally. Well, you can't become somebody else, can you? Isn't that the whole reason that God made you to be who you are is that you're not like somebody else? But then how can you expect to do what somebody else does and get the same results as they do? Yet church after church after church in America tries that. You find a mega church, you find somebody with some kind of success, and what's one of the first things they do? They start a minister's organization. Why? To build a network of pastors who want to be like them. And it never works. This happened with the seeker-sensitive model of churches some years ago. Everybody's running to become seeker-sensitive. I, I never really understood what that exactly meant. The two things that I did to understand or came to realize about seeker-sensitive churches is they consider parking their number one issue. Got to have available parking. And then the second thing on the, on the preaching side is you can't mention the blood of Jesus. Well, that leaves me out. You know, I, I'm glad I learned early. But after a number of years, the record showed that the average seeker-sensitive church was 50 or less people. You know how big the churches were before they started trying to be seeker-sensitive? 50 or less people. In other words, the model didn't work. But Pastor Mike, look at some of the big churches in the country. Look at how how well it works for some of the big churches. It may work for individuals that that's the door that God's opened for. But there's no one model, there's no one size fits all when it comes to churches. Every church should find out what they're supposed to do and do it. And the kiss of death for any church, any ministry, is to try to be like somebody else because something else is working for them. Are you out there? So when, when you hear people complain, when you hear people complain about me, you know, first of all, they're of the devil. But when you hear people complain about me or complain about the church, just take it in stride and realize not every church is supposed to do the same thing in the same way. No point in criticizing me for the way I am. This is the way I am. No point in praying that I'm going to change. (laughs) This is the way I am. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, your church doesn't do this. Okay. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, your church doesn't do that. Okay. You know, there's a lot of things about us that I would like to be different. But I am who I am. And I have who I have. We have the resources we have. There are things that we would do differently if we had different people to be in charge and to help in different ways. But you got who you got. Jesus said, I'm setting before you an open door that nobody can shut. I believe God sets open doors for every church that he plants. Now, folks, listen to the way I said that. Not every church out there is church is planted by God. I'd hate to guess at the percentage that are. I just know we are. So I'm going to stick, and stick to that and mind my own business. But I've set before you an open door and nobody can shut it. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength. Though you're little in number and little in resources, you're strong. Thank God strength's not based on size. Thank God strength's not based on resources. Yet here's the thing that so many Christians and so many pastors think about. If only we were bigger. If only we had more money. Those are the two things that churches are trying to get to. Those are two things that pastors are tempted to sell their soul for. Bigger crowds and more money. Yet Jesus says, though you're little little in size and little in resources... Poor in resources, one Greek commentary says, many Greek commentaries actually say that, you're strong. 
Strength is not based on size. Have you ever noticed all the times that, that God asked people, what do you have? Moses said, I, I can't lead the children of Israel. I can't go before Pharaoh. God says, what's that in your hand? He said, well, it's just a stick. But he used that stick to bring the greatest nation on the face of the earth to its knees. The prophet asked the woman, the widow woman that was in debt, whose sons were about to be taken into servitude. She asked the widow woman, what do you have? She said, well, all I have is a little bottle of oil. But that bottle of oil turned into multiplied oil business. They got her, out of, got her out of debt. The disciples came to Jesus and said, send these people away. They haven't had anything to eat. And Jesus said, feed them. How are we going to feed them? There's no place to, big enough to buy food. He said, what do you have? Little boy's lunch, five loaves and two fishes. Somebody once said, well, the fish were bigger in those days. <laughs> and it was one little boy's lunch. <laughs> said, what do you have? Five loaves and two fishes. Jesus multiplied that and fed the 5,000 and had 12 basketfuls left over. So often we look at what we would do if our situation was different. If only we had more, then we could do something. The principle seems to be to use what you have. Thou hast a little strength. Though you're little in number and resources, you're strong. And thou hast kept my word. How do you become strong? Notice the connection between those two. Folks, the word of God is the only thing that can make you strong. It's the only thing that can make you strong. Thou hast kept my word and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan. As I said, Jesus uses the same phrase in Smyrna in chapter 2 and verse 9. Of the synagogue of Satan. Talking about the Jews. Which say they're Jews and are not. Yeah but I've got. The genealogical history. That shows that I'm a descendant of Abraham. Jesus said that's not what makes it. Makes it real. Paul talked about. Not all Israel is Israel. In other words it's. Those that become Jews. Through Jesus. Not through Abraham. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through him. They say they're Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. Folks, this is so, so, so important. Whatever the, um, the influence, whatever the, the trouble the Jews in Philadelphia are stirring up against the church, and we don't know what it is. We don't have any historical record to, to know one way or the other. We could speculate, of course, but... We, there's no way to know if we're right. But whatever the trouble is, whatever Jesus references the synagogue of Satan to be, and, and I say that perhaps I ought to clarify what I'm saying. If the Jews were leaving Jesus, leaving the church alone, why would Jesus mention about the Jews who say there are and are not? Why would he talk about the synagogue of Satan? There's got to be something that they're doing relative to the church that Jesus is referencing. Got to be something. So whatever that is, he says, I'll show Everybody. I'll show everybody that you're the one I love. That's a good principle to remember when you're going against your enemies. That's a good principle to remember when others are bringing things against you because of your stand for Jesus. I'll show everybody that I've loved you. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Um, I, I have to be careful how I say this because I don't want to leave the wrong impression. I believe every Christian is taken in the rapture. Jesus mentioned on several occasions, if we know how to be good to our children as parents, how much better is God a good heavenly father? Well, no matter what was going on with my two kids, if one was behaving the way I wanted him to and the other was not, if something happened to where I could either let them experience difficulty and adversity and harm or take them out of it, I'd take them both out of it no matter what was going on. Well, if I'm that good a father, wouldn't God be that good a God? It's contrary to the character and the nature of God in my opinion. I know not everybody agrees with this and some people teach otherwise. 
But it's contrary to the character and the nature of God to me, in my opinion, for God to leave any of his children, any of those that have made Jesus the Lord of their lives, become part of the family of God to be left for the tribulation. Just doesn't make sense to me. As I said, others have different ideas. So understanding that principle, plus understanding the character and the nature of this church that Jesus identifies as having strength because of their position with the word of God, having kept the word of God. Jesus knows the rest of the revelation he's going to give John. Now, what's the number one thing, actually two things, I guess, that people get from the book of Revelation? The mark of the beast and the destruction upon the earth. Maybe the Antichrist. All of these things are related. Maybe you can't even separate them out. They're all part of the tribulation period. In other words, the point that I'm trying to get across to you is Jesus knows that just as the church has been arguing for 2,000 years over the meaning of Revelation, I mean, for goodness sakes, the church even argues about what the seven letters mean. The church argues about whether this means seven different time periods in the church history or whether it means seven different churches. Well, Jesus said seven churches. There were seven cities. There were seven pastors. He's talking about seven churches. Well, the church can't even the church world today can't even agree on that. And you know as well as I do that there's all kinds of different ideas about the tribulation. Who's going to be here? Who's not? And so forth. Jesus knows that when the revelation that he gives John is going to give John at the time that he speaks these words, he knows that the thing that everybody's going to get is the trouble that comes upon the earth. Well, what's the number one thing that people want to know when it comes to talking about the tribulation? First thing I want to know is, I'm going to, is, is am I going to be here? If I'm not going to be here, then I can read the tribulation information a whole lot differently. And Jesus, knowing that's the case, identifies you're the kind of church that the rapture was made for. Those that are strong and those that have kept my word. Now, are those the only people that are going to make the rapture? I don't believe so. But it's who the rapture was designed for. It's who the catching away was intended to be for. So what does Jesus say? He says, I'll keep you from the tribulation that will come upon the whole earth. Verse 11, he says, behold, I come quickly. I come quickly. Have you ever noticed that the first thing that John sees after the letters are finished, the first thing John sees, or the first thing that happens really is John says he's caught up into heaven. In other words, the first thing that takes place before we have any information about the Antichrist, the mark of the beast, troubles, earthquakes, wars, anything else. The first thing that happens is John is caught up into heaven. Well, if that's not a rapture, what is? And what happens when he's caught up into heaven? He sees the representation of the whole church, the seven spirits of God, standing around the throne. Now, Jesus said about the Holy Ghost that he'll never leave you nor forsake you. He will abide with you forever. Could that be true if the Holy Ghost goes to heaven and leaves the church behind in the tribulation? In other words, wherever the Holy Ghost is, the church has to be too. So when, Jesus, when John sees, when John's caught up and he sees around the throne of God, the great multitude, well, it is a great multitude. That's not what he calls it. He calls it a crystal sea. Do you know that crystal is the only element on the earth that cannot hide a flaw? You can even hide a flaw in a diamond, but not in crystal. He calls it crystal, a sea of crystal mingled with fire. Then fire uses the type of the Holy Ghost. He sees the Holy Ghost in total and complete manifestation around the throne of God. Well, then where does the church have to be around the throne of God? It's the first thing that that John sees, the first thing John relates before anything else happens. And Jesus says, behold, I come quickly. Now, granted, folks, God's idea of quick and your idea of quick may be two different things. Certainly is true for me. But he knows how the churches are going to read this stuff. He knows the churches are going to read the trouble coming upon the earth. Think about the church at Smyrna that's under persecution already, hearing about the tribulation events and all the things that are going to take place in the Antichrist. Of course, they would think of the Antichrist, the world ruler, as Nero in Paul's day, if they had had the revelation in his day, Domitian in John's day, 
they're going to look at that as Caesar. And as a result, the church has interpreted things like that in the same manner, these scriptures in the same manner, for thousands of years. But for them, it's a real-life issue. They're looking at tribulation and they're thinking, well, how can it get worse than what we've got? He knows that they're going to misinterpret and think that he's talking about in his day. Of course, Jesus doesn't know the day or the hour. Only the Father knows that. So when Jesus said, behold, I'm come quickly, it seems to indicate Jesus is standing on ready at any moment already in their day. That was true then. How much more true is it for us? Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man can take thy crown. Notice he says this to people that are strong in the word. You still have to stay on guard. You still have to stay on guard. Don't coast. Don't get happy and get puffed up because I said good things about you. Hold fast what you have that nobody can take your crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. Now this is instructive to us, because, well, instructive to them specifically because of the earthquake situation that they've experienced. He's saying he uses an example and many pillars came down in many buildings and so forth because of the earthquakes. He's saying, I will make you an immovable part of the temple of God. I will bring that which represents strength and stability to you. You won't have to be afraid anymore. You won't have to live on edge. I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more or go no more out. In other words, you won't have to live in the fields anymore like many of you are now. It'll be a permanent dwelling place. It'll be an eternal home. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem. Now, remember, this is written in about 93 or 94. The churches receive it in 93, 94, 95 A.D. Jerusalem, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D. So when he talks about Jerusalem, it's got to be the new Jerusalem because everybody knows that the old Jerusalem was destroyed. As a matter of fact, many um, historical records point to the fact that John left just before the city of Jerusalem was destroyed in 69 or 70 A.D. when he saw the writing on the wall and he saw what was happening between the Jews and the Romans. So he got out before the city was destroyed. Some 23, 24, 25 years before this letter was given. So he says, I'll write the name of the new city, of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. Notice it's a new name. That references the name change of the city of Philadelphia. He's saying, I'll give you a new name. Just like Tiberius changed the name of your city. It didn't last for long. Just like Tiberius changed the name of, you, of the city to honor himself, I'll write my new name on you. He that has an ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. The the thing that I want you to take away from this, and there's a lot of good information, I guess, that we could refer to, but the thing I want to leave you with off this is the open door. Does God just open door for churches? Now, the Bible says you're the church. The Bible says you, as individual members of the body of Christ, make up the family of God. So when he talks about the open door, thank God he opens doors for our church. And I can see certain things that he's opened doors for us to do. And in, in one sense, we're a lot bigger than we look. Just off the TV alone, we're reaching about 60,000 people a week. Those are 60,000 people that we'll, many of them will never hear from. It, it, it goes up from 60,000. I think we're averaging at uh, uh, 48, something like that. But it's, it's uh, our average is going up. It's gone up to 100,000 on occasion. Well, those are, those are people we'd never know. We don't know the impact that we're having. We just know that those are people that, that, are, uh, that we have record of that we can reach. That doesn't include, and, and I, I say this all the time, because I have never yet found anybody that said anything about our TV program that says they live and listen live. I've had hundreds of people stop and say, hey, we watch your program, stuff like that. And I always ask, do you watch it live or do you tape it, record it, and watch it later? And it's always record it and watch it later. Well, we don't have any way to measure those. So the number could be twice that. It could be three times that. We don't, we don't know. I'd like to think that it's a lot higher than the numbers that we can identify. 
but we don't know for sure. So we can't claim the numbers. I don't want to be known as an evangelistic preacher who usually exaggerate their numbers. But we know that those are the people that we are reaching. Well, let me ask you a question. If 60,000 people wanted to come to our church, what would we do with them? Man, talk about a nightmare. So I consider that to be a door that God's opened. We've had a lot of opportunities for that doors to shut. A lot of people have tried to shut it for us. TV stations have tried to shut it. Other ministries have tried to shut it. But if God opens the door, nobody can shut it. So I can certainly identify certain areas where he's opened doors for us as a church family. But what about the door for you? What door is he open for you? Don't think that he just opens doors for churches and you're off the hook. There are things that God has for you to do. Specific things that he has for you to do. That will be different than the things he has for me to do. One of the things that I think is the strength of our church. Or one of the strengths of our church. Is that not everybody is like me. I'm pretty much like the church at Ephesus. I'm about doctrine. I'm about sticking to the word. I'm about following the line on that stuff. But remember Jesus said that he had something against the church at Ephesus. Because they weren't doing the works of showing the love of Jesus to the world. Well, who's going to do that? Well, I'm doing the best I can by teaching the word and spreading the word through the TV program. But who's going to be the one to show the love? Folks, if you hadn't figured it out by now, that's not me. (laughs) So I'm going to need people that are different from me to do the work that I can't do. And don't think for a minute God didn't design it that way. See, we're, in, we're inclined to think that the right person is going to have it all. Really? Somebody show me who that is. I can show you guys that, that are great and showing love and this winning personality and magnetic draw to them and stuff like that that wouldn't be able to teach their way out of a paper bag. Wouldn't even be able to find Bible verses, much less teach them. And the church world goes through different phases of what they look for, too. Have you noticed that most of the popular preachers now are preachers rather than teachers? Well, thank God for good preaching. But can you live on good preaching all the time? Can you live on just being inspired? Good preachers get you stirred up. But then what? Can you live on just being stirred up? The Bible talks about zeal without knowledge not being profitable. Inspiration without a background or a foundation of teaching truth won't help you much over the long haul. So we're all made different. All of these churches are different. They have different issues. They have different goals. Jesus is trying to impart vision to the church of Philadelphia. I hope it inspires vision in you because there's something you're supposed to do i don't know what it is that you do and there's something that everybody is supposed to do there's an open door for you don't try to put it off on your wife or your husband or me there's something that god's opening the door for you to do and whatever that is nobody can shut it except you No other man can shut it, but you can fail to walk through it. But let me tell you something. When you find what it is and walk through that door, nothing will bring you satisfaction in your whole life like that. Not a thing in the world. Money can't compare to it. Possessions can't compare to it. And I believe personal opinion i believe that just as their faithfulness the faithfulness of the church of philadelphia put them in a place of fellowship and approval of god 
so will it do the same to you. And will probably increase you on the other areas as well. Because a faithful man shall abound with blessings. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you that we have a privilege of living by it and being strong in the truth. Thank you, Father, for the power that's in the name of Jesus. Thank you that you don't require us to have a lot to use us. You just require us to use what we have. Open our eyes, Lord, to show us what it is we have. Those specific gifts or talents or abilities or resources that you've placed in our hands to walk through the open door that you have for our lives. I know that there are some here, Father, that are tempted of the enemy to think that the door has been shut for them because of their own failures. Thank you, Lord, that the door that you open, nobody can shut. And that when we put ourselves in a position to be faithful, we can walk in your will as if nothing ever happened that was wrong. Lord, we thank you that your word never changes. We love you, Lord. I pray for each and every person under the sound of my voice. That you would give unto us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. That the eyes of our understanding being enlightened, that we would know what is the hope of your calling. What is that open door? And the riches of the glory of your inheritance in the saints. What gifts you've given us to use. And the exceeding greatness of your power that works in us. The power that will see us through. No matter what it is you've given us to do. Lord help us to show the love of Jesus in everything that we do to everyone we meet. What a privilege it is to know and walk in the truth Father. In Jesus precious name. Amen. Can you agree with that prayer? Amen. Amen. Well, let's all stand together. Hallelujah. Don't forget the regular schedule of services. We've got prayer school at 5 o'clock this evening. We'll continue to pray for our country and pray for the glory of God to be seen. And then 6 o'clock tonight is evening school. Come back and be with us if you can. Have a great day. We love you. You're dismissed.